And this is the value of anthropology. Living there, talking to people before I actually deployed the survey, you learn what's really going on. Hey, Malika. Hi, Chris. Wow, that's the first time I've gotten to say that on tape. I know, very exciting. It's very exciting. So everybody listening, if you didn't catch the last episode, Kara is on sabbatical, and I am uh, honored to be co-hosting with my good friend Malika Sarma. Malika, you want to tell everybody about your wonderfulness? Very happy to be here. Uh, I have been a Sausage of Science fan since day one. I think uh, the first episode I was doing field work when I listened to the first episode and I have this flashbulb memory of driving through the Wyoming wilderness and hearing the Sausage of Science. And it got me through those long drives. And so it, <laughs> it really is a Lies. full circle moment. <laughs> I think you were actually right, either right before or right when you got back from fieldwork, we interviewed you in that first season, didn't we? I think so. I think yeah. so. I remember being like one of the uh, early guinea pigs in the whole podcasting experiment. Yeah, we it's... went into that first HBA meeting uh, after we started it with like five interviews. And I think you were, you you might have been one of them. It makes me feel very special. I'm glad that this podcast has survived. I know that the past couple of years have been a time of interesting experimentation in ways that we can socially connect. And so I'm really happy that the podcast was before, has continued, and continues onward. I Have think you gone that's back and listened to that early episode of yourself? Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> maybe, maybe I will. Maybe now that I'm, I'm hosting, I will go back to listen to it. But um, it's it really interesting, particularly now that I'm in a very different place in my life than I was when I first interviewed. So to, to go back to your to your question, I am currently a postdoctoral research fellow at Johns Hopkins. Um, I, my work is continuing doing really cool things in biobehavioral adaptation to extreme environments, but I am working in human spaceflight. And if I remember correctly, during my interview, that was something that it was a dream. I wanted to do it really badly, and now I'm doing it. It's it's been exciting to watch uh, to watch you, and 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 I'm really honored that you you're still in the game. You know, like you had these <laughs> dreams, you pursued them, you're you're very successful at them. Kara recommended you to be our co-host because you know you've always you had that charisma and energy, and and it's I think it's pulled you through. But like that that thread has maybe maintain your work but it's really i'm babbling now but what i was what i was trying to say is one it's really it's really validating to see someone that we interviewed had dreams fulfill those dreams have an arc and now you can come back and reflect on that arc as we ask those very same questions of others but since you got to introduce yourself Karen and I just launch into this every single week and we never go like even our last names or who the hell we are. We just assume <laughs> everyone listening has been listening for five knows. years and knows exactly who we are. So I should also say who I am. I'm Chris Lynn. I'm at the University of Alabama. We are both biocultural anthropologists. In our program, I call myself a biocultural medical anthropologist, but probably very similar training to Malika, very similar training to Kara. We're here to interview and chat with our fellow human biologists. So, Malika, we were supposed to start one on Monday that's being rescheduled, but who is our very first guest that you and I will be interviewing together? So we are really excited to have Dr. Paula Tallman come and speak with us today. Uh, so Dr. Tallman is an anthropologist investigating the causes of health inequalities and formulating strategies to promote environmental and human health. Her mission is to identify the pathways creating global health disparities and use the scientific knowledge for action to improve human and ecological well-being. She finished her bachelor's degree in behavioral biology at Johns Hopkins, so a nice connection there, back in 2008, yeah. completed her PhD in anthropology at Northwestern in 2015, and moved on to a postdoc at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. 
So currently, she is an assistant professor in biological anthropology at Loyola University, Chicago, and is the director of the Laboratory of Human Health and History. And I was really excited to um, actually run into her at the, God, what meetings did we just go to? The AAA meetings. And yeah. um, I, ran at, I ran into her at the AAA meetings in Denver at the uh, BAS, the BioAnth section. Her name had come up a lot, right? Because she, uh, she went to Northwestern, um, the Human Biology Association's current president's Josh Snodgrass, our AJHB editor is... Uh, Bill Leonard, both uh, Bill is at Northwestern. Josh graduated from Northwestern, so we have a lot of Northwestern connections. we start is is how we're starting right now right so the sausage of science is a podcast about how the sausage is made or how the science is made and we always start off the same way which is what you're doing right now we want to know how the scientist is made and what led them down this path to torture themselves through the 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 labyrinthine hoops of academia I was born in New Orleans. My mom's from South Africa. And so when I was nine, we decided to go live with my grandmother. So we moved to South Africa. And then my dad's business in South Florida wasn't doing well pre-internet without computers or him not being in the country. So we headed to Florida. And then that's where I grew up. I don't know if, you know, Florida's a good place. I don't know if I recommend raising children there. <laughs> maybe maybe edit that out. But no, it was, it was quite I, an adventure. I raised, I raised children in Alabama. If you are the parent, you can raise kids anywhere. Anywhere, anywhere. It's, yeah, Florida was, it, it was interesting. So my mom was really alternative. And I think it kind of comes to your question about how did I get to anthropology? And I'll yeah. make it a short version of kind of the longer story. But when I was 15 for Mother's Day, my mom asked me to go to a seminar on shape-shifting shamanism. Amazing. Okay, Ma, you don't want to get your toenails painted. You want to go to a seminar on shamanism? I'll, of course, I'll go with you. And when I was there, the guy who was leading the seminar, he had worked for the World Bank and he'd been sent to the Ecuadorian Amazon to try to get the shuar on the dollar because wow. oil companies wanted to buy their land and you can't buy people's land if they're not using money. And so that was his intention. And when he went down there, he realized there was more in the world and he shifted to bringing attention to the environmental issues facing indigenous populations in the Amazon rainforest. And as a part of that, he was bringing groups down. So I asked my parents, can I go on this trip? And they said, well, we can't go with you, but you can go, which was amazing. A lot of, a lot of, um, what the fuck? <laughs> independence, a lot of independence oh. opportunities. So that, that was cool. So I went and I had this life changing experience where I, didn't, I say I, that as a parent, but it's wonderful, really. Yeah, it, uh, you, you know, I, I I hope they just viewed me as very mature at that that point. Uh, that's what I'll go, I'll go with. And yeah, when I was there, I was able to speak to community members, and they expressed their concerns about what was going on with highway development and deforestation, and how that was impacting their health and their well being. And that was just the the click moment for me. I was like, wow. this is really real. This is what's going on. And I want to be able to understand what's happening and also do something about it. And so at that age, um, and actually my mom, again, who's very alternative, she gave me a book on Chinese medicine that had the word psychoneuroimmunology. And I'm like, what is this? It's Amazing. Yeah, the brain and the immune system. I'm like, this is what I want to do. And that's what led me to Johns Hopkins, because I was like, I want to study neuroscience and immunology and understand how stress affects health. And so that's what I went and did. And then I worked in clinics and I, was like, and I worked in the hospital. And I was like, hmm. And I poked rats and I was like, I'm interested in the immunology, but don't want to be working with rats. And so I took a year to do an independent research project studying medicinal plants in the Peruvian Amazon after I graduated. Then I came back. So that was ethnobotany, how people use plants. And I still didn't quite know what I was doing. So I Googled, of course, Google. Thank you, Google. I Googled psychoneuroimmunology and ethnobotany. And Tom McDade at Northwestern came up. And I was like, what is this person who's bringing these interesting things together? And he was in the Department of Anthropology. And that was really my first introduction to anthropology. And I 
very one-mindedly said, I want to work with this person. And so I applied and was accepted to the PhD program, even though I'd never taken a class in anthropology. So it was wild starting. (laughs) I got to say, we've done, what are you, you're almost the 200, we're not quite the 200 episodes yet, but we're getting close. Almost everyone says I've got a really bizarre trajectory. You didn't say that. The people who don't say it are the only ones who actually have unique. Truly have. Mm -hmm. That's, that's one of two or three I've heard that are actually pretty different. Not now I want to interview your mom. Where's your mom? (laughs) Yeah. She sounds pretty fucking cool too. She is. Now she's growing her own food in Alaska. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, she's, she's a mover and a shaker. So, so it's great. So that's really, I went to Northwestern and I was just stunned. I had no idea about the biological and cultural divide. I was coming at it from very kind of bio healthy things. I probably said things that were wildly offensive because I didn't understand a lot of what just the bigger issues were within anthropology. But I credit Tom McDade and the department there for supporting me and getting me to where I needed to be, which was a big, it was a cliff like this. <laughs> yes. So let me, let me ask you, because this is sort of a topic that we, we address a lot on, on this show, right? Like, and we do it in our own programs. So I have, I am not a grad director now, but I have been the grad director in my program. And we wrestled a lot about whether students should have previous training in anthropology to come into our grad program. So let me ask you the follow-up question what were the pros and cons of being admitted to the program with no background in anthro? And now you're uh, you're teaching anthro, I assume, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm a professor of anthropology. Oh. I never that was never my plan to to be where I am, but it's I think I was driven by the topic and where and I was passionate about what I wanted to do. So I think mm-hmm. when we're thinking about graduate students, do they have prior experience in international contexts that indicate that they have some eye towards cross-cultural competence. Um, I think that's important. You know, what is it that they're interested in? You know, is it, does it have an anthropological piece to it? And what are the skills that they're bringing in? So I think Tom McDade was interested because I had that laboratory experience and I'd also, I also had the field experience. And I think that's why they believed in me because I was bringing the skill set. So those are the positives. The negative part was it was just graduate school is intense and it becomes more intense when you're learning something completely different. I think, yeah, I think you can take students that don't have background in it as long as there are those green flags standing mm-hmm. up saying, hey, this is going to be a, go- a good fit. And Tom McDade, at one point, because I've, I've been interdisciplinary since the beginning, right? Like, oh, neuroscience and immunology and environmental sciences and all these different things. Woo-hoo, woo-hoo. And so when I got to Northwestern, I was like, I want to collaborate with all these different people and draw from this. And he sat me down and he said, Paula, you need to become an anthropologist. And that was the wake up call that I needed to say, you're right, I need to have my mm-hmm. professional identity so you don't become so diluted that when you eventually get to the job market, you don't know who, where you belong, uh, which I think, you know, is, is, a, is a challenge for those of us who are working at the intersections of these different fields. Yeah, I, as someone who's currently in a non-anthropology department and is like trying to find a way to like straddle both anthropology and public facing science and medicine, I think that that point about identity becomes really important. Like knowing that this is the toolkit that I can bring to the table and this toolkit is valuable in this context for X, Y, Z reasons. And so actually a follow-up question I had, I, I know that like post graduate school in, you know, you have talked about like your postdoc, which is in a really interesting position. And then going back to being like a faculty member at Loyola, yeah but you're doing such cool public facing work now. So how do you think like your role as an anthropologist and your training as an anthropologist, particularly coming from this interdisciplinary background has shaped the perspectives that you're taking and like the impact, I guess, of the work that you're pursuing right now? It really came out after my doctoral work where, so as mentioned, for a long time, I've been interested in environmental and social change, how that affects human health and well-being with a real focus on biology, the brain, the immune system. I'm very passionate about those things. And when I went into my dissertation research, I was taking this lens of vulnerability. What creates vulnerability to poor health? And I can talk a little bit more about that if we get to the water insecurity pieces. But 
as I was coming out, and, and is it related to all these different health outcomes? And so I measured all the human bias stuff, blood pressure and BMI and body fat, and we did blood spots, markers of stress and infection and nutritional, nutritional outcomes. Then at the end, I created this index of vulnerability and predicted all of these outcomes. And then I said, well, so what? Like, it's not a surprise that if you are at the intersection of multiple stressors, like food insecurity, water insecurity, access to healthcare, that you're going to have worse outcomes. And it is important that we bring to bear data on these issues. When I reflected on my year, you know, living among the Awohun and the Peruvian Amazon, I think it's issues of sovereignty, it's issues of mm -hmm. control over over land, it's issues of how do you navigate of religious freedom as well, because there's been, been that. And so it's these broader structural factors. And my role as a scientist is to bring the data to bear on these questions. But when I when you see so much suffering, for me, it really motivated me to think, well, what is the type of data that, that, that can then connect to policy to make these structural changes to actually do something about it? Because mm -hmm. I felt very sad, you know, like asking yeah. people about what is about their suffering, about what is stressing them is a very intense process. And I think we are to right. not just hear it and document it, but to think about what do we do with it? Mm -hmm. I really love that. You know, one of my sort of cryptic questions that I had and was what does critical in critical biocultural medical mean to you? And, I, and it does come out to me towards the end of that article with that quote, but I wondered if you could articulate it a little bit more and amplify it for us. Absolutely. So I think that in many ways we can do biocultural research. We can look at how culture is influenced biology, how biology influences culture. And for me, the critical part is that upstream view. What are these larger structural factors, the political economic contexts that are then feeding down into these factors that are a bit more proximate to when we get to human health and biology and making sure that we have our eye on that in our analyses so that it's that background context. So we see the, big, the bigger view. And then in my most recent work, how does an understanding of the stakeholders, the players, the political economic context allow you to take your data to the right people to mm -hmm. then push for change, right? So I'm jumping all over the place, but we're doing this research in Indonesia and Peru on water insecurity and gender-based violence. And I can talk a little bit about how that kind of came up because a lot of times people are like, what? Water insecurity, gender-based violence? Like that's a, um, not an intuitive connection necessarily, but our aim in that project was to collect data, create these policy briefs, then have these multi-stakeholder feedback sessions with local government officials and say, this is what we're finding. We're finding really high levels of water insecurity. You know, we're seeing it linked to gender-based violence. What are what is happening now to address water insecurity in these contexts? Because we have communities where it's like we knew we suspected it would be less and then more. And so mm -hmm. we have now quantitatively shown really, really high water and security scores in these particular communities. What can be done? And now we're so excited. We're going to be going to Indonesia at uh, the end of this month into, into next month. And they've built wells in the water and secure areas. They have gone forward with this promise to establish a shelter for women who are survivors of domestic violence. And so there are ways, I think, to um, to pitch, right, to, to pitch your research to the people who are in this larger political economic sphere uh, to push for change. And so that's, I think, the, the critical biocultural synthesis, I think, is an eye on those things. But what mm -hmm. we're trying to do is go next step. All right, you got an eye on it, but how do you now engage with it? Right. Which is not an easy thing to do. And it's not something that we're necessarily tra trained in as anthropologists. And that's where that postdoc at the Field Museum of Natural History was really important because I was working with an amazing group of people in the Science Action Center, and their whole objective is to connect science research to action. And how do you do that? It's, it's really people, it's stakeholders, and, and it's getting information out in an accessible way. And that's yeah. a challenge for us because we're always preaching to the choir. <laughs> right. <laughs> and but that's really amazing to have, you know, actionable change that you can see. 
right? And then there are, there are follow-ups and I feel like there's a lot of lip service to it that's paid in grants or like writing an NSF, like what are your broader impacts? It's like, okay, what are my broader impacts training students and making sure I have an inclusive lab, but also we do science to hopefully have an impact on the world. And so being able to have those tangible changes is really amazing. And it's an uncomfortable space sometimes because uh, I feel like this is not my wheelhouse. This is not my <laughs> wheelhouse. I feel very, you know, I'm working on a paper right now looking at water insecurity in H. pylori. And it's real, real cut and dry, right? Like, mm -hmm. you got it. Is there an association or not? Here's the background stuff. That, to me, is the easy stuff that I'm like, oh, I'm just going to bang this one right out. But for me, the things that I'm most drawn to, that I'm most excited about, are the ones that inherently end up making me very uncomfortable. <laughs> so let's let's get let's let's dive into some of the we, we're talking about the implications now, but let's let our listeners know what what the, the papers are so they can talk about it. And we're going to do a little bit out of order. Um, and the reason we're going to do it that way is because what we're trying to do is drive people to actually read your articles, and we want to see if that. people. If if by interviewing you on here and talking about an article in AJHB, people actually read that AJHB article, but also your other articles. So the one that yeah. just came out is called Water Insecurity, Self-Reported Physical Health, and Objective Measures of Biological Health in the Peruvian Amazon. You've got a list of co-authors. Who are they? What what role do they play in the project alongside you? Oh, my goodness. I've got Shaleen Collins on there, I believe. She is the one of the most amazing. I've got an amazing group of collaborators globally, but Shaleen is fabulous. She is finishing up her PhD at Tulane and I go to her on almost every paper and I say, Shaleen, do you want to work? She worked on that secondary wires paper. Nice. And she just, she brings these skills. She's quantitative. She visualizes things. She's amazing. She's an up, I mean, she's a star. Gabriela Salmon is my closest colleague in Peru, who's also on the gender-based violence project. And she's a public health scientist, epidemiologist. And so it's wonderful because we think very similarly it's wonderful because when I have a question, she can find help me find it in the data. So she brings she brings that perspective. And then Mia uh, MPS Shaparo uh, was is a colleague of both of us who works on nutrition, and, and she's a, a word ninja, and she we she really <laughs> helped us because I think it was a short report in AJHB. She was our person who word ninjaed our way to get it to be a short report and brought and brought also just another critical perspective um, to the data. So that's the team. And right. I think it's the four yeah. of us. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I'd have to I, I can pull it up in just a second. I'd love a short report. Nice and pithy. Yeah. So we have some really some clear takeaways. Um, one is confused. I'm going to let Malika ask about that. She wrote wrote the question, but I'm going to throw I, I, I want to know about who you're working with. Right. Because. It's a population whose name we're not necessarily as familiar with as some of the others that, that uh, you know, the Shawar, the Chinam. So, so can you tell us who they are, how you came to be working with them, and what that was like for you, including yeah. the water you drink? Among the Awuhun, you mean? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was figuring out my doctoral research, I had my eye on the Shuar that wasn't going to work out. I'd worked in Bolivia with the Chimane as well. And I contacted Armando Valdez Velasquez, who was um, my, I guess he was my boss when I did that medicinal plant study. And he is always just at these touch points through my careers. He's been amazing. I mean, he's a, he's a bird scientist, but he works in environmental sciences and also dabbles in human -y stuff. He's a, a Renaissance man in, in academia. I said, I'm trying to figure out where to do my research. And he gave me a map and he said, where do you want to go? I will put you in contact with the right people. And so I said, well, I'm interested in the Hiverone ethno-linguistic group because of my experience with the Shuar, the Awuhun, our South in Peru, that'd be great. So he put me in contact with some uh, Awuhun representatives who were working for the Department of the Environmental Ministry. <laughs> Ended up going and meeting all of them at an airport and just randomly, I, never, I thought it was one or two people, it was 12 people, and I had to do my entire pitch, which was nerve-wracking, and then one of them said, hey, come to my community. All right. And then I went, and I thought it was just a visit. Turned out I was giving a talk to 40 people, and they had all of these questions, and that was nerve-wracking, too. And then they said, please come. You can live with us. Permission permission granted. This is very exciting. Yeah, I was able to coordinate, and they built me a beautiful house right along the river, and I spent the first four months of the research. So it was a year, a year long period. The first four months 
participant observation, right? Because I had all these ideas about vulnerability and what I was bringing into it. Let's see what's actually going on. Because I'd worked, again, in different indigenous Amazonian communities, but it was new there. And that is so important. I think this really highlights the value of anthropology because there are things that pop up that you don't expect. And then these preconceived notions that you do have turn out to not actually be important. And that's really, I think, the, the value also for global health for anthropology is we've got these great global health interventions, but sometimes we don't think, do they actually make sense in these particular contexts? And we're talking about time, energy, resources that can be better utilized when you have an anthropologist on the team. So that's kind of my pitch for, I think, how, how important anthropologists are um, for this type of work. The Awahun, it's, it's gorgeous. There's a river and then the community and subsistence livelihoods meshed with really interesting dynamic where people are working as teachers for the government and the teachers for the government are in these bilingual schools. And the reason I soon found out was because the Church of Nazarene had such a big role in the history in this particular area. And long story short, I'm not sure if it was in the paper, but the Summer Institute of Linguistics came into this area to promote bilingual education. So they had all these educators in schools. They never told anybody that they were part of the Church of Nazarene. And so at the same time that they were educators, they were also Nazarene evangelists. And I mean, it is hidden. It took me I spent a lot of my dissertation unearthing that because I felt like a journalist. I was like, I, I think there's this connection and I'm going through old videos and, and, you know, the books. And then there was one time where one of the teachers, one of the key teachers said, and we are also Nazarenes. And I was like, I knew it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, but it's been huge because it has created this class segregation because you have the people who are still plantains, yucca, subsistence livelihoods, and then you have a whole new class of teachers and um, people who belong to the church who have been able to make money because of now the connection with the government. The government was in cahoots, and then there was a connection with um, highway construction. And so they've, like many other indigenous Amazonian populations, have been going through rapid lifestyle changes, in part because of evangelism, in part because of deforestation and extraction, etc. So when I was going in, I was really interested how you know, what is the history here? How has that history manifested in this current local context? And what do people find to be most stressful for them? Can I, can I ask a question? Because that, that, so that's in your paper, Water Insecurity and Mental Health in the Amazon Economic and Ecological Drivers of Distress in Economic yeah. Anthropology. I was loving that paper because in the South Pacific where I work, this is true anywhere where anybody works that was colonized, the same fucking story with the combination of the economic incentive mixed with the missionary, they use the missionary to infiltrate and then they economically yeah. exploit. It's the exact same story of Hawaii, exact same story. What, so oh, what, year, what year was this? It started in the 1940s and it really accelerated in the 50s and 60s. And then in the 70s was when the president in the 60s, the president of Peru was in cahoots with the main guy from Wycliffe Bible Translators, which is Summer Institute of Linguistics. And so they were paying, playing a big role. Hey, missionaries, go out into these areas. All right, we're going to build these highways. And it was all in cahoots. So that's even sleazier than it sounds in your article that they actually kept it, it on, I, the, on the down low. Yeah. And I have an ethos article that's about socioeconomic status and Epstein-Barr virus antibodies, actually. So I found that people of lower socioeconomic status status in the community had higher Epstein-Barr virus antibodies, so higher biological measures reflecting chronic psychological stress. But the whole paper is really that background in exploring Sky Letourneau, who made all of his money off of basically highway and deforestation machines, like to take down big trees and mow down everything so re and then they oh my goodness then they had Bucalpa, which is further south they had a whole they made a whole community of evangelists where they had everybody come and get trained there and i mean it's it's really the background is extensive and then th that's the, the problem i get so pumped about understanding this background and that's kind of the critical part as well like what is going on historically that has been manifested in what we're seeing right now but then at the same time it's like well what's it is what it is so how do we work within the current context we can't change what's what's happened and so I have more stuff about 
now I'm working in some areas on the Peruvian coast that are heavily Catholic and they have high rates of teenage pregnancy. But how do we work within that context? Because you're not going to change the context. And so how do you understand where they're coming from and what are appropriate interventions such as like natural family planning? Not the most effective, but something that actually might get used, whereas oral birth control and content are not. Like that's just really not going to happen in that particular area. So anyways, I think I digressed there, but that's a little bit of the context for the the awahun. And then um, do you want me to connect to water? Because I'd be happy. Yeah, I am really curious about, you know, you've been working with indigenous communities for quite some time. And so how did you make the jump to water insecurity? And then maybe you can talk about like the connections to gender-based violence as well. So when I went in, it was with this vulnerability context. And in the vulnerability literature, it's food insecurity, it's issues with healthcare, and it's also issues with water. And so I went in with those ideas, but I didn't think that in the Amazon rainforest, water was going to be a problem because it is one of the wettest places on earth. There's a river right there. It looks all right. You know, it rains all the time. And this is the value of anthropology again. Living there, talking to people before I actually deployed the survey, you learn what's really going on. And when I, I, started asking people, I said, well, what is stressful for you? And I remember this, I can like see it in my head, where this guy said to me, you know, my kids have problems in school. They don't seem like they can pay attention. And I really am worried about what's in the water because upstream from us, there are oil things going on, there's mining, and I know that the contaminants are getting into the water and I wonder what it's doing to the development of our children. I said, and that weighs on me every single day. And I said, Oh my goodness, you're right, right? And then you start realizing. And so I was living in a traditional home, no electricity, no running water. And so my latrine was a hole in the ground. And I noticed that the water in the hole in the ground tended to go up when the river was higher and tended to go back down. It's connected to the river. And so all of everybody's latrines, the pit latrines are are going in. And then I and then another thing about living places, I said, well, what do you do with your garbage? <laughs> well, you burn it or you just go in the night and you throw it into the river. And so this beautiful river that we all bathe in, that we get our drinking water from, that we're washing, you know, all of our fruits and vegetables in is contaminated with industrial contaminants, with sewage, with all of these different things. And so it looks so like this waterscape and it's actually, it's toxic in many ways. And then the other piece was, as an anthropologist, you go and you live with people and you do what they do. And so we would go out to the chakras, the, the agricultural fields to get plantains and yucca. I started saying, what, how do you get water? How am I going to bring, it's like an hour and a half walk. You know what? You take your river water and you boil it. That's a pain. It smells like smoke. You got to cool it down. That means you're not using your, your pot. You're putting it in plastic. The plastic is kind of crumbling in. Then you're walking that water an hour and a half out there with you. And so people just don't do that. And so they're thirsty. It's hot. And so there's dehydration. And I realize there are issues with access. So there's water all over the place, but it's in the river. It's in the river. And so if you're going far from the river, you don't have access to it. And then as I was doing surveys, going from house to house to house, it's obvious, but you don't really see it until you do it. Some of the houses are right on the river, and then some of the houses are way, way up the hill. And everything that you do that requires water, the cooking, the cleaning, the, you know, if you want to bathe, not in the river, but over over here, it all requires that you schlep water up up these hills. And I had this old man say, I think I have the quote in, in one of the papers, like, I'm just like, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I don't even have water to drink. And you wouldn't think that in this context. But when you listen to people, when you open up the conversation for them, that's what was, was coming up. And so it was, it was unanticipated. And then, um, to just jump to the water and security piece. I saw uh, a conference for the Economic Anthropology Group Association, and it was all about water. And I said, well, I've got this water and security data. I haven't even looked at it. So I did my whole dissertation, and I didn't even really look at the water because I created the index of vulnerability. I did a chapter on food insecurity. I was really interested in evangelism and healthcare, lack of shamans, and all these different things. I'm like, let me like check this. And I was following up on Amber Woodich's fabulous work where she had worked in Bolivia and found that water insecurity was associated with psychological distress. And I had all these measures of perceived stress and uh, depressive symptoms, et cetera. I said, let me take a look at this. Bam. This is another paper 
uh, yeah, an economic anthropology published, I think, in 2018. Yeah. So wait, so you 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 did not go into your disc to do water security? This all came. It all came. It's funny the way things work out. So no. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ma. Exactly. It was cool. But the vulnerability piece, I think it's really good. But as I started having my eyes on policy, vulnerability doesn't translate that well. Like it's hard to define. It's defined in lots of different ways. Lots of different disciplines are using it different ways. I've done a review paper called a cookbook for vulnerability research. Oh, good. It's like well-being. Like what the hell does it mean? Like well, exactly. And I was big into well-being. That's why I went to the field museum to do a whole thing on well-being. And it at that point, my career started saying, but it's not functional. It's not translating well. And so when I got onto the water train, that is understandable to everybody. Mm-hmm. It's not the whole picture, but it's a big part of the picture. And it is easy for everyone, most importantly, for government officials who actually have control over resources and things of that nature, who say, of course, of course you need water. And so that was um, how I got hooked up with the HWISE crew, the Household Water and Security research coordination network and that has driven my career uh, for the last five years yeah yeah y'all are super active and doing amazing work and as i said to asher last time right there's lots of this is this is a lot of this reminds me in a lot of ways of when jim mckenna and karen worthman started doing sleep stuff it's like how the fuck did we not think to study water water yeah it's uh, and it's an incredible group of people. It's really exploding right now in a, in a good way. And that HYS RCN, which is this research coordination network, which they get a newsletter and everybody's on emails. That's what led to my newest, newest. I mean, it's like four years old, but the work on water insecurity and gender-based. I thought it was really interesting that, you know, while there is this relationship, this is going back to your AGHB article, but while there's this relationship between water insecurity and poor perceived health, that the only uh, biomarker what that was related to it was this lower systolic blood pressure. And so I had a lot of questions, like both about that specific finding, but connecting it to these quote unquote objective biological measures and like the value of that and the use of that. And especially for, you know, many of the human biology listeners we had, like this is our bread and butter, being able to collect yeah. these biomarker data. But going back to what you were saying about translatable research that is going to have impact to these government policy officials? Like, how is all of that connected? Yes. So I fully expected that we were going to see more relationships between water and security and the human biology piece, right? Because it was, and the the story behind it's a little bit funny because I did this mental health paper and I didn't check the bio stuff. And then when I went on the job market, I was putting together my job talk for Loyola and I go, oh my God, I haven't looked at the bio. Like, am I out of my mind? So literally a few days before this presentation, I ran the numbers and I was like, oopsies, um, there, here's more, here's more to work on. So yeah, I hypothesize that water insecurity would be associated not only with perceived physical health problems. So again, if you don't have access, if you're worried about contamination, you can get gastrointestinal distress from drinking dirty water. If you're dehydrated, you feel nauseous, you feel dizzy, all of these, you have headaches. And I had data on all of that. And then I had all of this human biology data as well. And the hypothesis there was higher blood pressure, because if you're water insecure, you're hypothesized to be more stressed, which is associated with higher blood pressure. And this is something that Alex Brewis, I believe, found in Nepal. And then, you know, there's been some really fun, fun, fantastic theoretical pieces by Amber Woodish, by Asher Rossinger, uh, thinking through potential connections between water insecurity and human biology. Nutrition is a big piece as well. And I had those nutritional biomarkers of cholesterol, triglycerides, glucose, et cetera. So none of it came out. I mean, the 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 perceived physical health did, right? So we saw increased reports of and this is reports, right, of diarrhea, nausea, back pain, headaches, chest pain, fatigue, dizziness. I asked asked people to rank their health, overall perceived poor health, you know, having worse reported health. And also I asked people if they were sick because we were looking to see reactive protein. So I wanted to see if when you said you're sick and you actually had like snuffles and fever, to see re, uh, CRP elevated, I had that question. So all of those were associated with water insecurity, but then none of the human biology. And so I think in many places, food and water security are really closely connected, right? If there's not enough water, the plants and the animals are not doing well. 
Okay, so that's a, a major connection. In the Amazon, it's not the case. They're disaggregated because you don't have to water anything. It's raining, right? Like it's gonna, it's gonna grow, etc. So I think that may explain. Although, if you're drinking contaminated water, you would hypothesize that you have more intestinal infections, which may then interfere with the absorption of nutrients and metabolism, and so could manifest in some nutrient deficiencies or stunting. But it's hard to do stunting when you're working with adults. So, yes. so, so just to interject then, you, we, we have now a testable hypothesis that we have to find some water insecure people in, and some food insecure people. Yeah. Yes. Sadly. sadly yeah. Too, too uh, and there's plenty. Yeah. There's, there's plenty. And there are, there are review papers looking at the intersection of water and food insecurity, and it holds in most places. Yeah. Um, I would assume in water abundant context and later I'm launching a project in Puerto Rico. So that's also in some places, water, water abundant. It's different, but you're still, I mean, I think the big push for my most recent research is there can be water insecurity when there's plenty of water. Why is that? It's about differential access. It's about contamination. So, and then the systolic blood pressure, that was a real, I said, oh my gosh, it's significantly associated with lower systolic blood pressure. What is going on? And then you read Asher Rossinger's work in the Bolivian Amazon with the Chamane. He found that water insecurity is associated with dehydration. And we know that dehydration can lead to lower blood pressure. So potential, a potential mechanism there. But it was unexpected. I had thought we were going to see more. And to give it away, we just are doing the H. pylori. So H. pylori is a bacteria that infects the stomach. Water is a hypothesized route by which people become infected with H. pylori. And we just looked at it. But the issue is, um, in all the literature, we're looking at seroprevalence. So who's infected and who is not? And everybody's infected. So there's no variation. So <laughs> it's like, you know, nothing is really coming out in our analyses because 99% of the sample is infected with H. pylori. Whether there, it means anything, if there are higher antibody levels or, or not, Kind of looking at some of those dynamics, but you know it's hard. It's hard to, to look at those things. So, yeah, that's 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 those findings. Really, really interesting stuff. And then Malika, to go to your point about um, objective measures, and like I think you're saying, it's really important. We are human biologists. This is our bread and butter, as you mentioned. And I am always driven to understand how our environments, both ecological and social are getting under the skin to influence our biology. However, the world is not in a good place. And it's not in a good place in a really, really, in an accelerating way. And for me, we need to, and again, this is not to say anybody who does any other type of work is not doing great stuff because they, they are. But for me, I wanna put my attention where I'm seeing suffering, where I'm seeing problems. How do we document this? What do we do about it? Because I've got two little kids and I want the world to be better. And I want all of us to work towards making a better world in whatever way that is. You know, there's all sorts of man manifestations of that. And so as an anthropologist, as a biocultural anthropologist, it's about weaving these stories together in the way that they, they fit, understanding the human biology, but listening to people's stories, asking them about their symptomology, doing it in both a quantitative and a qualitative way, and having that speak for what's going on in, in these in these places and drawing attention to it and you know thinking upstream. So we've talked a little bit about how your work with water insecurity has been connected to gender-based violence. And I think that that goes to your point about connecting it with the stories of what is happening with the people you're working with, that critical connection of biocultural work. And so I wanna, could you talk a little bit more about that and explain how you how you see these connections happening? Absolutely. So for the, how do you make the sausage? So I was part of this HWISE RCN and I received an email through that group and somebody was interested in putting a bid together for the British Academy Frontiers of Knowledge International Interdisciplinary Bid. And I had heard another colleague of mine had sent me this bid, but it requires the PI to be in the UK. And I'm like, I'm not going to go like finding somebody in the UK. So when this came through the RCN with a PI in the UK, I said, oh, international, interdisciplinary, very interesting. So we hopped on a Zoom call and she, Dr. Stroma Cole, who is based in the UK, has worked all over the world, but extensively in Indonesia. And when she was in Indonesia, she 
observed that in households, when there wasn't enough water, it was leading to fights within the household that she was hearing reports were then leading to domestic violence. She also heard a story about a girl who was on her way to collect water and she was abducted and I think forced into, into a marriage. And so those were the seeds of, if there are problems with water, is this increasing the risk for gender-based violence? And so we put together this proposal because my specialty in Peru, we pulled Gabriel Ramon, who's a, an epidemiologist on, and then Titi Rasidi, who is Dr. Sermacol's uh, colleague in Indonesia. She's in social work, so we brought her on. So we've got Peru, Indonesia, United States, UK, or social work, cultural anthropology, biological anthropology, real, real interdisciplinary. It got funded. And so that's been the last four years. We're just wrapping that project up now. And it's been difficult because of the pandemic. We were able to do data collection with local teams, which was an amazing, amazing opportunity, or else it just wouldn't have happened. And then, you know, the interestingly in Peru, people did not report gender-based violence where we were working. Now we know by talking to the people who are working in the health centers and in the government that this is not reflecting what is going on. And so we have this bigger question of why are people not reporting gender-based violence? So we don't see any associations there because nobody's reporting GBV. In Indonesia, we did have people reporting GBV and we actually find that controlling for relevant covariates and all this stuff, household water insecurity scores are associated. If you're water insecure, you have 3.5 times a greater likelihood of reporting gender-based violence. So big associations going on here. We also see these community level differences. So we have those water insecure, and water secure communities. We see much higher rates of GBV in the water insecure communities. Again, community level, lots of other things going on here. But then when you pair that with the individual level or you know within the sample, those associations, it makes a stronger case that there is an intersection. And then the strongest case comes from people's stories about my husband, he was out, he had a long, long day out in the field and he came home, I didn't have enough water to make his coffee and then he hit me. And it, it comes into this really interesting area of research that I didn't expect going into, but about gender and about household roles and, and water being women's work and what that means in these, these power imbalances. And so that's what we're finding. And then the most, um, what I'll actually be presenting at the Human Biology Association in April, I think we'll all be there Yes. in April. Yep. In addition to what we consider conventional forms of domestic violence, that can be physical, it can be sexual, economic, et cetera, psychological. We're also seeing specifically that women's reproductive health is being compromised in, in really, really ugly ways by water insecurity. So women were telling us, they didn't have enough water for a sanitary birth. They had to buy water for their birth. I mean, we see this globally as well. People for vaginal hygiene, people can't clean themselves, especially for menstruation. This is also uh, intersecting with taboos about menstruation. So women can't stay clean. And the girls don't want to go to school, et cetera. And we also heard stories from women, you know, even after birth, they have to go collect water, right? Like this is their work to do. And a woman reported, that her uterus fell out of the, the, the vaginal canal because of the, the weight of the water right postpartum. And this is combining with women feeling shamed about talking about women's health, reproductive health. And so with climate change and all of the things that are happening in the world, water insecurity is, is going to continue being problematic, right? They're undoubtedly going to continue becoming problematic. No way zero doubt, zero doubt. Like this is not a problem that's going, it's going away. And we're seeing how women, biological females, are uniquely susceptible to lack of water in these vulnerable periods. You know, when they're pregnant, women need more water. And that global review that I, I sent to you, there are these stories of women from Africa saying, you know, my husband wanted to take a bath, so I let him use the drinking water. And I only had potatoes for dinner with nothing. And then, oh, this is the story that really got me the most. I think it was Mushavi who, who reported this first, the stress of it. So this woman is like, she's not able to do everything in her household because she doesn't have water. And she says to the kids, you've got to go get water and I'm going to spit. And by the time the spit dries, you have not brought the water back. It'll be beatings for everyone. And so 
water insecurity is creating fear within these households for these women. They're fearing being beaten because they're not able to meet these gendered expectations. And then that's rolling forward onto the kids who are then living in households of fear and who are being beaten because of this fear. And so really what we're seeing from these stories are these intergenerational cycles of resource scarcity. It's water, it's food, it's, it's economy, right? And stress and beatings. And we know that that affects human biology. And so I think human biologists, we are very interested in what we can measure as well, but the effects of violence are also biological. And, and that's really the direction of the research is thinking broadly about what violence is, broadly about what, what health is, and acknowledging that the stories of the people who are suffering are up there with also understanding our biological measurements. I'm, uh, when I was reading that piece, uh, every year at uh, Easter, we watch Ten Commandments over and over again. Um, not that it's a great piece of cinema, and uh, forgive me for bringing it up in the midst of your interview, because it's kind right. of trash. But when Moses is in the desert, uh, the daughters are coming to the well to feed, to, to water the sheep, and some dudes are harassing them. They, I was reading your paper, looking at the graphic and the sexual harassment. And I'm like, of course, this has been happening forever. How is it forever. that you, at, there were only 18 articles that you could find that addressed it? And how is it that we haven't thought to address it since then? Like when I read your pa paper and then I thought of that, I'm like, of course, they're being harassed when they walk to the well. Of course, there are scumbags waiting at the well to rape them or trade sexual mm -hmm. favors for water. Of yeah. course. What? Yeah. You just, it's not something that we live in a state of privilege in, in, in many cases, right? Like, and I can tell you after I got back from Peru after that year, I really appreciate toilet seats. They, it's a really nice thing to have, right? I also, I appreciate turning on the tap. And, and these are our luxuries that we have that we take for granted. And then when we put ourselves out there, whether it be via global health or via anthropology, and we live in other places, we, we understand that it is a privilege and that when you don't have these things, how it impacts your everyday life. Hmm. And you can see that, you know, we, we think about the abductions and all of this. And then what we don't see as clearly is like the fear that these women are carrying all the time because they know that this is happening. Like, how does that eat away at, right. at people when they know they have to go do this? I mean, the, the thing that gets, I guess maybe it's because I have little kids now. But when I think about these stories about these women who leave their kids in the house because they have to go get water and they don't have anybody else who can who can watch them and they've got these little kids and they just cross their fingers that the little kids are not going to like really really hurt themselves or something bad is is going to happen i think about that as a mother and you just it's a it's a it's an invisible burden and and really what we're trying to do with our research is bring visibility to these structural and slow forms of violence that sometimes and you don't know. And I have students, I, I do this high school summer thing on um, ecology, and I have students carry water. Because how often do you carry water and understand the weight of water? That shit is heavy, and it sloshes. So it yes. really messes with your musculoskeletal system Skeletal as system. you try to lug it. Oh. Also, like, you don't want to lose the water as you are lugging it. And so, like, learning how to carry is part of it as well which is really interesting you know yeah, i yeah. i recently read some work by a journalist sarah trent who had done work on women and water conservation and so like mm -hmm. on the other side of it there's some recent work coming out suggesting that when women are in charge of water conservation and like con ecological con conservation practices it yeah. does better because they're they're in these really critical roles of understanding, you know, water practices and uh, everyday activity. And so they can do that role a lot better. And so I think that it's really cool to see that multifaceted impact that women have in these specific situations. Absolutely. And we see historically that women are not in positions of power and, and particularly in water management. It's, it's, it's very, very dominated. And so we have a book chapter that we're just setting back now. And it's all about 
um, women and water and government and human rights in Indonesia. And one of the key examples that we use from Indonesia is that there was a woman who was in charge of this area where people would come to get water. And she basically said, no matter what caste, because you still have slavery in Indonesia, people are part of different castes and there and there are slaves. But no matter what caste, you get this much water per day. And don't bring your motorcycle over here to use this water to wash your motorcycle and wash your wash your cow, right? This is only for drinking water. Wow. And so this is just one example, but I think no matter what, we know that there are these inequalities. And so how do we again bring attention? Uh, bring data to bear on these inequalities and then go to the people who are in charge and who, who have the ability to change economic and political management structures and say, nudge, nudge, nudge. Look at this data. Mm. Wouldn't it be nice if something good was done? We have data. <laughs> we, have the have, we have the evidence. Yes. You want to make the change? We have the change. We have the data. No, yeah. that's that's great. Um, it in so many ways for all the reasons you're saying, right? Like, uh, policy people always want actionable data that that is going to be meaningful to people. So I hear exactly what you're saying. I also hear a lot of mindfulness, right? Both about the population you're working with, but about your own life and your own sensitivities. And so we wanted to ask you about that. Malika and I were both impressed that you're your about your mindfulness on your website how you describe your life your kids tell us about your kids and the time you took off and how you find balance in your life with all the stuff you're doing and I, and i think and protect yourself from the trauma yeah. of what you deal with yeah and that it's a, I, I appreciate you opening the space because i think we really need more people to talk about that because there is a leaky pipeline and i almost slipped out of it and it's so I was um, finishing up my postdoc and I had the opportunity potentially to continue as a full-time staff member at the Field Museum. And it was the most wonderful place in the world. And then um, my husband, we got pregnant, which was really exciting. And we had always envisioned that we would move back to Massachusetts and I would be a stay-at-home mom. And that was just always what we thought. And so I said, bye-bye Chicago, which I loved. And we moved to Massachusetts and it was a shock. I thought that being a stay-at-home mom was going to be like me in the garden with like the baby on my back and it was just going to be sunshine and magic and it was not <laughs> at all that it was birth was way more difficult than I thought breastfeeding was way more difficult and I love Jim McKenna and his amazing work but I didn't think that it could be as hard as it was for me and then the other really difficult part that I think is important for um, young women to, to hear is it can be really difficult if you're it's difficult either way you stay in your job it's not easy because you want to be with your baby we don't have enough paid time off to be with our children you back off from your job you miss your work you feel say what am i doing oh my gosh my phd is a poop handling degree i'm doing nothing with my life i'm depressed you know so really really difficult and i was only able i paid to work i paid a babysitter so that i could write these papers. <laughs> and that is really disheartening that, and I was able to do it, thank you to my husband, because he was able to support us, but that is not the case for most people. And people are then cobbling things together and trying to make everything work. And so I began cobbling when my daughter was two months old and I started teaching a global health and anthropology course. And it was magic because I got out of the house. I had a reason to actually like put some regular clothes on, put my face on, which was, which was welcome. But again, I was privileged because I was doing that for my mental health and because I loved doing it. I wasn't doing it because I had to worry about the household economy. And so there is this leaky pipeline that right around the time, depending on your, your pathway, but for many people in your kind of late 20s, you're finishing up your, your PhD, you're like, you're thinking about tenure, well, thinking about full-time positions, et cetera. And at the same time, people may be contemplating having a family. And it is no easy thing to juggle. And I was in some really, really... Um, there were dark places because, uh, and not to be political, but Trump was elected three days after my son was born. And I was like, what is happening to the world? Oh, and, PTSD coming into that world, huh? Yeah, yeah. But, but long story short, I was able to um, connect with amazing people who are in our society, human biology study. Morgan Hoke was a huge person. Tom Leatherman and Alan Goodman, we were 
time we were working on a book, it never came to fruition. But their support, their academic support was huge for, for my mental health and saying, I'm going to stay with this. And then, um, yeah, I was just pulling things together. And, and I also had a position at the Field Museum as a research associate. So I at least had an institutional affiliation. That's another problem, right? You take time off. And if you don't have that backup institutional affiliation and you're going places and saying, you know, I'm interviewing for this. And they said, well, where are you? Oh, I'm sitting at home breastfeeding. That's what I'm growing a human. It doesn't look good. But we need to we need to make it okay. Right. People are choosing. Yeah, I can't make a human. That's pretty fucking impressive. So kudos to making humans and making. I think it's. Yeah. We should say not just making humans, making good humans. Yes. That's fucking. <laughs> I, I have three that I just sent off to college. It's hard fucking work. So. And I, I think it's it's really so something that Chris and I had mentioned like before we jumped on the call is like how important it is that like it is aware like people are aware that you took this time and that is like part of the academic trajectory it informs our work i mean we're anthropologists we know that our our lived experiences are informing the work that we do and so we should be open about you know if we're this year i'm going to be in the peruvian amazon this year i am raising some children and this year i'm in chicago that that's fine that's part of the trajectory and the same yeah. political economy that we use to describe how the population you're working with have gotten themselves in the position is exactly the same story you just told us. We want to understand what position the scientist has to be in to be able to do the science, right? right? To understand yep. what position the people are in that we want to help. Like we're, the, the same variables are happening on both ends. There's just different levels of privilege. So thanks for that insight. Yeah, and and economy and, and just and also stepping into this place of empowerment of saying it's okay to just be re, just be having children and, and growing them and you know it's that can be a very very full-time job, job. Okay. a very important job right we talk about all these things kids are important and then we don't actually create structures that it's changing i think there's more paternity leave i think that that it's changing but five six years ago when i was having kids it was still it was still a little bit dicey. And, you know, when you look at a CV and you see a gap, I think there's something in you that goes, oh, why is there a gap? And it's like, well, I we was making humans. We wonder. Yeah. We do. Yeah. I've been on many exactly. hiring committees. We talk about it. There's a gap. Can we, how gap. do we find out what that gap's about? That's what we need to know. Yeah. And people, and then it's hard because I think as well uh, in jobs, you, you're not supposed to talk about family, right? Like, you're not supposed to talk about this, that. And so it's just, it's real, it's really dicey. Um, and I feel incredibly privileged that I got this position at Loyola University of Chicago, where the reason I came, because I had an offer from Holy Cross, we wouldn't have had to leave Massachusetts, but it was uh, more like a visiting thing. The only reason I uprooted everybody is because this department was understanding of work-life balance. They were supportive, and they continue to be. So I'm well into my second year, and I have felt completely supported and so much love, and we need more, uh, how do we say, I, I want to say non-toxic, but in fact, I want to go one step further from non-toxic to towards empowering departments, because you see so many examples in PhD programs where people drop off, they don't make it, you know, and that's ethically a little bit, well, ethically, it's problematic. And then it's also problematic with time, energy and resources. There's a lot invested in PhD students and early faculty members, and we're blubbing it up. And how are we blubbing it up? by not acknowledging that we're whole people. And I think it's a really exciting path forward to be able to advise undergraduates, advise graduates and advise or speak to colleagues and be open about these paths so that we all know we're, we're just trying to be happy, healthy humans as best as, as we can. And I tell you, hot yoga is my key. To <laughs> that was my next question. Uh, speaking of, of healthy, happy, whole people, Hot yoga. What else do you like to do as a person? Oh man, I love rivers and waterfalls. I love water. That's maybe the why my research is so focused on water. I I love travel. I'm actually traveled out. We did a little too much travel this year, um, but I normally love travel. But really, right now, um, we're just leaning into the kids are four and six, and they're starting to become fun. I have to tell you, I was baby crazy, and then I realized I'm not a baby person which was hard because I had two babies. 
they're yeah. older and they're fun and they're in school. And I feel as if a weight has been lifted because I did that time with them and now yeah. they're in school and I can write and we go to museums and we do art and like this, you know, you can sort of negotiate with them, et cetera. So really all my time is work and I don't see work as work. Like I love, love my work. And it's because I get to speak to incredible people and talk about topics. Yeah, look at us. We're working right now. This is our job. I know. Right? <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful thing. You know, there's a lot of work that, that, that as I said, at Northwestern, right? there was that cliff that I had to get up. I think that's anthropology or that's, you know, graduate work, et cetera. But at the top, if you're with the right people and if you're working on things that you love, it's it's really, it's a good place. It's a good place to be, I, I have to say. So oh, you're you're a great ambassador for the discipline. Thanks for coming on the show. This has been fantastic. Thanks, everybody. I appreciate you having me on. And, you know, go read the articles. Come to the, the meeting in April. Let's chat. I always love learning about specifically what other people are doing and how this connects anything to do with environmental sciences, public health, well-being and vulnerability. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This is amazing. This was really fantastic. And I'll just like put out there, I don't know if it'll be edited out or not, but this is my first of the guest interviews um, that I'm helping co-host Chris with. And this was really a pleasure. I think we like knocked it out of the park. We're really favorite. lucky to have you. <laughs> it's her favorite one that she's done. <laughs> uh, you know, there's not a lot of competition, but I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Well, I will see you all, I hope, in April. And yep, Malika, enjoy Baltimore. For sure. Just enjoy Thank that you. nice weather out there. Right yeah. on. It's 70 today. Peace out. Oh, so nice. <laughs> Jealous. Have a good day, guys. Thanks again. Thank you, too. <laughs>